This is Jeremy Bassetti, and you're listening to Travel Writing World, a podcast featuring interviews with travel writers about their work and about the business and craft of travel writing. You can find the episode show notes, free travel writing resources, and much more at travelwritingworld.com. Hello, everyone. This is episode 99 of the Travel Writing World podcast. Joining me again is Pico Iyer, and this time we're talking about his new book, The Half-Known Life, In Search of Paradise. The Half-Known Life is a book about paradise, the real world, and the unknown, topics that Pico and I chat about today. So we're going to jump right into the episode, but before we do that, uh, just a note to say that I am back from sabbatical and I will be publishing episodes again on Travel Writing World. But I'll be doing so intermittently, not fortnightly, as I have been doing since 2019, so I can focus on some projects. Anyway, please consider supporting the show with only a few dollars a month at travelwritingworld.com forward slash support. And if you can't support financially, you can support us at no cost to you by sharing our episodes with your network or by leaving a positive review on the Apple Podcast app or whichever podcasting app you use. Sharing is caring and along with reviews it helps the podcast gain visibility. Lastly, for a curated roundup of place, travel, nature writing news, please sign up for Genius Loci, my free monthly email newsletter at jeremybassetti.com, and that's with two S's and two T's. A new roundup goes out on the first of the month. So now, here is Pico Iyer. Welcome back to the show, Pico, and Happy New Year. Uh, thank you, Jeremy. So nice to talk to you again. And um, the sun is flooding through my little apartment in Japan, so it really does feel like a happy new year. Nice, nice. And so you're you're in Nara? Yes, my adopted home in our little rented two-room apartment where we've been for 30 years. <laughs> so your little slice of paradise, I think, in a, a topic that we'll talk about today. Exactly, yes. Your new book is The Half-Known Life in Search of Paradise. So paradise is an idea that we we find in so many cultures around the world, and it holds a central place in many of the world's greatest texts. Uh, yet you seem to to call out this idea that you know that paradise is but a mirage in the desert that we can imagine yet never quite reach. So my question to you is: Why do you find yourself reaching towards this idea of paradise? Why is it so gripping? Well, as I was listening to you, I suddenly was remembering we're, we're talking in the context of travel today. And mm-hmm. I don't think this has quite struck me before, but anyone who travels goes between one place and another that is presented as paradise. And as you know, I've been lucky enough to travel now for 48 years. So whether I'm in Tahiti or Bali or the Seychelles or Tibet, all the t- posters around me are telling me they're paradise. And yet this book came out of the pandemic and all of us living in this acute sense of uncertainty and very close to home and in straightened circumstances. And so I think as I was sitting in my aging mother's house, I was thinking, well, how can we find a version of paradise even in the midst of uncertainty, not on a golden beach or on the top of the Himalayas, but in the heart of the real world. So as you say, you know, one of the things that might be surprising to readers in this book is an investigation of paradise is <laughs> conducted almost entirely in war zones and places <laughs> of conflict, whether it's um, Iran or Sri Lanka or Kashmir or North Korea, because I thought the only paradise I can trust is one that can withstand and endure real life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm glad that you're, you're bringing this up. This is a book that... Uh, 
takes you around the world. You, you, you visit places like Iran, North Korea, Australia, Sri Lanka, um, and I guess less difficult places, if I, if I may, places like uh, Japan and places that you know very well. Has your, your travels helped sharpen or perhaps soften what you understand as, as paradise? Or how does, how does travel help you see the idea of paradise differently? Yeah, thank you. I mean, I think uh, perhaps it's helped me to try to deepen and refine my sense of paradise and to see past certain of the illusions or temptations that cluster around paradise. Again, as I say that, I'm suddenly remembering when I was in my mid-20s, I was working in, mid, in Midtown, Manhattan, and I flew to Bali. And it was nighttime when I arrived, but I woke the next morning and this boy with a beautiful smile, local Balinese, came and brought me fresh mangoes and tea on the terrace of my cottage. And there were kids playing all around and they had angel faces. And 45 seconds down this palm shaded lane was this beautiful golden beach. And the previous day in New York City, I was in midwinter gloom. Suddenly I was in this tropical sunshine. I remember thinking, this is heaven on earth. This is the Garden of Eden. (laughs) And then a few hours later, of course, night fell. And I began to hear the gamelans, the Indonesian orchestras, a jangling, dissonant, eerie in the night. And I could hear these wild dogs barking. And I realized that the those boys with beautiful smiles were performing a ritual dance in which they were literally reenacting mass suicide from mm. some legendary battle between black magic and white magic. And the little girls with angel faces were dancing in a trance. And suddenly I thought, I'm in something much deeper than I can possibly understand. And of course, I remembered the Garden of Eden is the place with the serpent, and the Garden of Eden is the place where knowledge is death. And if this is Eden, it's something much more complex and layered than I can penetrate. So it was a good lesson to have at the beginning of my traveling life, and maybe more towards the end of my traveling life now, 40 years later, I was trying to find a paradise that was durable and that wasn't a flimsy illusion of sorts. Were you able to find that? I feel so. Um, You know, I I don't want to spoil it for anyone who reads the book, Mm -hmm. but uh, I I remember the sort of counter moment to what I was just describing was that I was once in Varanasi, the holy city of um, Hinduism. And for anyone who's been there, they know it's the most shocking, crazy, disquieting place in a shocking, crazy, disquieting country, India. And so I was standing along the holy river there flames burning to the north of me, reducing dead bodies to ash, flames burning to the south of me. In the little lanes, people were racing through, carrying stretchers with dead bodies to commit to the flames or the river. Naked ascetics wandering around, smeared in ash. They were living in graveyards and drinking from skulls. And then in the river itself, people were drinking from it. Water that is supposed to be 3,000 times higher than the maximum level of bacteria and mm. considered safe for drinking by the WHO. So this mad wild scene, suddenly I heard somebody call my name and it was um, a friend of mine who's an American man, but he's a Tibetan Buddhist monk. And he looked across this crazy scene and he said, isn't this glorious? This is the whole human pageant. Mm. This <laughs> is birth. This is death. This is everything in between. This is the reality we have to embrace. And mm. I was kind of shaken up. I'm I'm Indian by by blood. I'm of Hindu origin. I was sort of allegedly in my home country and I was freaked out by it. And here's somebody from a different tradition in a different country who found this the only paradise we could embrace. And so just that notion that paradise could be found in the middle of real life 
and in the face of death, which is what Varanasi is all about, you know, that shook me up. And I thought, um, this is a paradise I, I can trust because it's taken everything in. It's the opposite of a beautiful illusion. Mm-hmm. As you're saying here, the idea of paradise is quite complicated. And I, I, I'm thinking here about, you know, this project that I'm working on myself, uh, which is in part about hope. And I found that, you know, hope springs from from suffering and despair, and you can't see one without the other. I see a similar pattern in your book, and you know you put it very nicely when when you speak of the the lotus flower coming out of the mud. When we see the lotus flower, we're, we're reminded that one of this the world's most beautiful objects, this flower, you know, springs springs out of something that we regard as filth and and mud and muck. Beautifully said. Exactly. I mean, that's precisely what my book is about too, because I think it's essentially um, about hope. And I think during the pandemic, like most of us, I was thinking, what what kind of hope can I find in the midst of this uncertainty? And I thought it's it's only going to be a hope that's not about turning away from the world, but actually traveling into it. And as you know, right at the beginning uh, of this book, I cite a line from Seamus Heaney, the great Nobel Prize winning poet from Northern Ireland. And when he saw Nelson Mandela released from prison after 27 years, he delivered this famous line, once in a lifetime, hope and history can rhyme. History has left every one of us with sorrows and uh, memories we can never erase. But still, there's always the possibility of hope. So I'm so glad you're you're writing about that. And when we were talking about paradise, I was thinking you're sitting in Florida right now. And of course, <laughs> to many people across the planet, that would look like a paradise. But anybody who lives there, as you do, knows the shadow sides, the imperfections. And, you know, humans probably were never meant to live in the same sentence as perfection because we're fallen, mortal, mm. imperfect beings. Just before we were recording, we were speaking a little bit about the Dominican Republic, and you're reminding me about my cousins who who have caught on a number of occasions uh, saying to themselves, I believe, I live where you go on holiday, or I live where you vacation, yet around the corner, you know, from the manicured gardens and the palm trees, uh, we we find squalor and decay and suffering and, and, and poverty. It seems like that paradise like hope only makes sense when we consider its opposite, which is usually not too far away. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Because you could probably say the same thing to your cousins in the Dominican Republic. And they probably are keen to come to Orlando or Florida right. for a holiday. And there's, I'm sure, plenty of difficulty and even poverty uh, around mm-hmm. the corner. So exactly, as you say, I remember going to Ladakh, which is one of the chapters in the book, as you know, mm-hmm. and it, high up in the Himalayas. And it really does seem to seem, does seem, very calm, content, self-possessed place, relatively untroubled by the world. So having come upon this kind of Shangri-La, first I thought, well, what do I have to bring to it? The only thing I can bring to it is probably corruption of a kind. I'm, I'm tamper- I could be tampering with this relatively peaceful place. And the other thing was, just as with your cousins, of course, the kids I was meeting in Ladakh said, oh, yeah, we know all about Shangri-La and Paradise. It's that place called Santa Monica, or maybe <laughs> the same about Florida or New York City. And understandably, they they had plenty of a, a landlocked place full of traditional Buddhist customs. They were hungry for what's new and cutting edge and connected with you know, Taylor Swift. Mm-hmm. So, yes, I mean, that's how Paradise is so often a projection. And I think as a traveler, almost anywhere we go, 
if we find it beautiful, it's useful to talk to a local who probably has other ideas and whose notion of beauty may well be connected with the place we've left. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and in, in the chapters uh, that deal with Sri Lanka, we we see this, but we also see another side here, and this this idea of the I guess the conflation between paradise and I guess political narratives, or I, I don't know what to call it, except for you know nostalgic narratives or Edenic narratives, where like political stories that call attention to an idealized or a pure past that some politicians believe can be reclaimed. I think one of the points that you raise in the book, and it's one of the, I guess, nice, very complicated, um, or nuanced, I should say, um, ideas of this book is that these narratives or kind of these visions of, of, of paradise kind of distract us from from the present. You know, the, the ideas of the past or the future are distracting us from the, the here and now. And you mentioned Buddhism throughout the book, and I'm wondering if if one can see in, in Buddhism an, an antidote to the poison of of these narratives. Oh, well, I, I love what you what you just said. I mean, that's that's perfect. And you took the words out of my mouth. Uh, but yes, I'm, I'm not a Buddhist, but I think they are aiming to address the, the illusion or the notion that paradise exists only in the past or in the future. Um, as you probably know, I've spent 48 years now talking and traveling with the Dalai Lama, who's almost at the center of this book. Mm-hmm. And for him, I think the only paradise that exists is right in the heart of the here and now, right here. This is our moment when we have to make this as close to paradise as as possible, not playing games with our minds, either with nostalgia or wishful thinking about the future. But right now, just the way the Tibetan monk was doing when I met him um, by the river in in Varanasi. And as you say, in Sri Lanka, the two things I, I notice are that my paradise will never be yours. And that uh, anyone who's found a paradise is probably going to clash with his neighbor because her idea will be different. And secondly, arguably, as you suggested, Sri Lanka's tragedy is that it's always seemed like an Eden. And so the Portuguese, the British, uh, the Dutch, all kinds of other places, forces have come in trying to lay claim to to paradise. And that's made it even more of a mess than it might be otherwise. I think for me, the, the central thing in the Sri Lankan um, chapter in some ways is the Catholic monk from Kentucky, Thomas Merton. Mm. And one thing I love is that after 27 years in his monastery called Gethsemane, he finally got a chance to travel to Asia. And he arrived in Sri Lanka and he traveled out and he saw these Buddhas. And looking a Catholic monk looking at these Buddhas found what he regarded as his realization, his peace, the answer to even the questions he hadn't been asking. And in fact, four days later, he died uh, through an electrical accident in in Bangkok. But I, like most of us, I feel that the world is ever more divided, even though it's more connected than ever before. And so as I was thinking back on these travels, I think like anybody, I was trying to think what unites us. And the notion of a Catholic monk who has the honesty and courage to find the answer to his inner questions in Buddhism, uh, having met the Dalai Lama, who's a Buddhist who loves to give talks on Christianity. I was looking for these figures who can look beyond their boundaries and see the truth of traditions that are not their own. So in the middle of the war in, in Sri Lanka and everything that, as you said, Sri Lanka has suffered for centuries, I was alighting on this lone figure of a Catholic monk so moved by the Buddhist statues. And I thought maybe that's something that any of us can gain, which is the the, the understanding to, to learn from a tradition not our own. Mm-hmm. 
I love that. You're when you're referencing you know, United and, and division and being divided. I'm thinking here about the book's title, um, "The Half Known Life," which comes from another great writer from Melville. And I was wondering if you could maybe spend a moment to to, to talk about uh, what he said about the half known life. Yes, and so I uh, Melville features many times in this book, partly because I think of him as the great traveler. But what was haunting about Melville was he was looking for something he could never find. He was trying to find God. He was trying to come to terms with the devil. He was looking for some essential answer at the deepest soul of the world, which really is very hard for anyone to come Mm -hmm. upon. Uh, And so, yes, in, in that sentence from Moby Dick, which was keeping me company during the pandemic, he suggests that we shouldn't leave home on a quest because um, that way lies disaster, disappointment, whatever. And Melville, of course, spent the last decades of his life just walking the streets of Manhattan, unknown, forgotten, and frustrated. I think he almost lost his mind looking for God. Uh, I take a slightly different so his notion was stay stay at home to avoid right. the disappointment of finding or not finding what you're seeking. Um, but I was also, I love that notion, the half known life, because it seemed to me that what we don't know is what defines our lives. And in fact, many of our deepest, happiest moments come w- from what we don't know when we're in love, mm-hmm. uh, when we're transported in, in front of the Patala Palace in, in Lhasa, when we're having moments of great faith, when we're in the zone, when we're moved in ways that we can't explain to ourselves, all that I think is the half known life too. Uh, And so I was kind of countering Melville and saying, I don't know that we should stay at home because what is unknown to us is is where the beauty and wonder of life lives, as well as the the terror and frustration. Mm -hmm. And Merton, of course, sought out that 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 unknown perfect yes exactly yes i hadn't made that connection but you're absolutely right and it's it's yes it's so extraordinary after 27 years in his cloister if he indeed found what he wanted or had thought he wanted in sri lanka on the other side of the world and then and then found death too hey everyone just a quick interlude here to say that if you're working on a project about place travel or nature and you're looking for a supportive community to bounce ideas off of or for accountability or motivation, join our Discord community. It's free. Join at travelwritingworld.com forward slash Discord, D-I-S-C-O-R-D. Now back to the interview with Pico Iyer. Your new book is, is a travel book for sure, but it's one that's, like your other books, tethered to uh, an idea. And so it seems that travel in, in your books, like this one, is is an entry point, perhaps a framework from which to explore the idea. And if this is the case, um, I was wondering if you could maybe talk to me about, you know, focusing on, di- on, on ideas instead of, you know, actions or like, you know, paradise, say, instead of passports <laughs> in the in the genre. Um, is this the case, do you think? And 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 what, what do you think about this idea about like a, an idea driven um, book as opposed to an action or a travel-driven book? Yes. I mean, I would say this book, like indeed, like most of my books, is an inquiry mm-hmm. or an exploration, which is, but but not just a, a physical exploration, but an inner exploration. Mm-hmm. And I would say it's about questions rather than answers. I think my first three books, to some extent, well, especially the third 
book I wrote called Falling Off the Map, that was essentially going to various places and describing how they seemed to me. So I think that was a description of locations. But as you can see in this book, um, I take out most of the dates and I take out most of the facts. So in each place, I'm using it as a kind of parable to to launch a question, essentially, that the mm-hmm. because partly it goes back to the half-known idea, which is that when I'm at home, I think I know everything about Iran or North Korea because I've heard about it on the news. And as soon as I confront the human reality, I see that I don't know a thing. Uh, and so for me, travel is largely about not you move towards certain kinds of knowledge, historical, cultural, human, but really you're moving into a rich and humble sense of all you don't know and perhaps can never know. So I don't want to be presumptuous. And in this book, I would say I'm not giving the reader a a great sense of um, what Iran is, but I am trying to give her a sense of the questions that will come to her if she does happen to go to Iran that more than in any other place. So I don't think there's any right or wrong Mm -hmm. in writing or travel writing, but I do think the travel writers I admire are the ones who are driven by a quest or an obsession. So I think, for example, of The Snow Leopard Mm -hmm. by Peter Madison. And on the surface, it's a wonderful book because it shows us a part of Nepal, Dalpo, that almost no Westerner had been to when Matheson wrote about it in the 1970s. But really the heart of that book is Peter Matheson has just lost his young wife to cancer. And so it's a it's a journey into grief and loss and rage. And as he's traveling among these Buddhist places that are telling him about illusion and, and suffering and impermanence, these are not abstract questions for him. These are the questions he most needs to deal with because um, he, he can't rest for them. And so every, every I think, great travel writer that I seek out is pursuing a question more than a destination. Uh, and it, I, it doesn't necessarily have to be an idea, but mm-hmm. something very close to their heart that they want to figure out. And of course, Melville's another good example. He began by writing travel books about his expeditions in the South Seas. And the readers of his time stopped reading him when he wrote about deeper explorations. What's the meaning of life? Does God exist? You know, what? how should we be living? But all these years later, I think most of us read Melville only for things like Moby Dick and, and for the deep stuff. We don't need to know what the South Seas looked like in 1847. Um, so I think travel writing has to be ins- animated by, um, let's say an obsession. Mm-hmm. Specifically speaking here, do you, do you, do you remember how this idea or when this idea of paradise gripped you uh, enough for you to want to write about it? So in this case, the, the idea came long after the travel. Mm-hmm. So in fact, it came in the middle of the pandemic and that was a time to think, how can we make a better life, a better mm. self, a better world in the middle of such challenge and anxiety. Uh, and so sitting at home in my mother's house for months on end in the pandemic, I was in some ways trying to see what my 48 years of travel had added up to. And paradise seemed a nice way to 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 think through some of the places I'd been. And to speak to your previous question about travel writing, in the case of, for example, Iran and North Korea, I had written long, very detailed, textured accounts of those places as I traveled through them. And when I went back to write about those places in the book, as I say, I took out 
<laughs> most of the fascinating details I'd collected, and I just used each one as a means to an end. So, for example, to anybody who goes to Iran, the the richest most beautiful places is Isfahan, really the cultural center. And that was probably the single most dazzling place I visited in Iran. And you won't find it mentioned once in my entire book or my long chapter about Iran. So in the process of writing, I was taking away things that might be diverting or pleasing or exciting and trying just to create some very single focused inquiry. Mm-hmm. That's why we but, love. But the idea of paradise. Sorry, that's a long, long answer to your question. But the idea of writing this book around paradise came to me two years ago during the pandemic, or three years ago during the pandemic. But later, I remembered uh, the first chapter of my first book, really, um, 36 years ago, uh, was musing on issues of paradise. The very first column I ever wrote for Time magazine in 1986 was about the meaning of paradise. So clearly, this has been something at the back of my mind forever, but I chose to bring it to the front of my mind uh, during the pandemic. Mm-hmm. As I think about your your older books um, and, 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 and your story, really, you, you often write about you know California as as the, the paradise with the Grateful Dead and all your 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 friends uh, back at boarding school wanting to know more yeah. about the, uh, the freedom and the paradise on, on the western coast. Uh, yes. So that's interesting <laughs> connection. I'm, I'm getting I'm I'm getting threatened here that we're running low on time, um, and I want to ask you one final question: what What books or authors are commanding or calling your attention lately? So many, you know. It's it's interesting. I was thinking just yesterday how, in the context of travel and in the context of writing. The people I really love, and I just mentioned Peter Matheson, he's mm-hmm. one example, are the ones who never stop reading. And I was thinking that in the older generation, on both sides of the Atlantic, two of the great travelers were Paul Theroux and Jan Morris. And they're famous for traveling everywhere and for writing a huge amount. But I think deep down, the reason we read them so much is that they read so much. They were interested in everything. Paul Theroux never stops reading. Mm-hmm. And... Jan Morris's every sentence is infused with um, the variety of her reading. So uh, insofar as this is travel writing world and probably some of the people listening are ones people who are beginning a, a life as a travel writer, I would say the only mandate, apart from writing a lot every day, is to read a lot every day. So when you ask me the readers who are currently commanding my attention, there are almost um, too many to, to mention, I almost entirely read fiction and Lauren Graff from Florida writing sometimes about Florida is one of the, the great transports of uh, recent times for me. Uh, Elizabeth Strout, the novelist, uh, her books are so, so close to life. I don't even know what to do with them. But wonderfully, just yesterday, I completed maybe the most exciting travel book I've read for a long time by a young Scotch writer. Uh, from near Edinburgh, I think, called Cal Flynn, who wrote this book called Islands of Abandonment, which probably fits uh, in the travel writing category. But what she did was travel to no man's lands across the world from inner Detroit to the Chernobyl exclusion zone to places that have been ravaged by volcanoes and war and other things. And in the debris of these almost unpeopled places, she found new wildlife, regrowth of nature, literally new seeds of hope and possibility. And she's a beautiful writer, partly because it seems to me she's read everything ever written. And on one page, she's referring to 16th century drama and T.S. Eliot. On the next, she's 
able to name every bird that she sees. And the next, she's excavating extraordinary details about volcanoes and science to the point I don't know whether she studied science or literature or both uh, when she was a student. But Islands of Abandonment is is one of the most exciting books um, I've read for a while. And lo- previous year, 2021, um, there was a book called Burning Man, which was a biography of D.H. Lawrence by somebody another English woman called Frances Wilson. And D.S. Lawrence, I think of as one of the great travelers uh, who lived. Everywhere he arrived, on his first day, he would characterize it perfectly. And he did this even with California. (laughs) On his second day, he'd get impatient with it and move on to the next destination. (laughs) But he had a rare sensitivity and antenna for picking up places. Um, And so if you read Burning Man, you'll read a lot about his travels in um, Sri Lanka and Australia and Mexico and New Mexico, as well as about um, this very heightened life. But when you ask me about reading, I sometimes feels that's all I do. I mean, during the pandemic, my great friends, as you can tell, were Melville and and Proust and Emily Dickinson and Thomas Merton, and uh, and I would never get tired of them. <laughs> yeah, I need to find uh, Burning Man. That sounds wonderful. I've read the Cal Flynn beautiful book. Um, yeah, would you agree? Uh, oh. I, I was bowled over by it. Mm-hmm. It was my favorite book last year, I believe. Oh, 2021, I think. 2022. I'm so, oh, Jeremy, I'm so <laughs> pleased because I didn't actually know anything about it. And it suddenly got sent to me because I'm about to do an event with her. Mm. And I was stunned by it. But I thought, I wonder if anybody else has read it. So I'm so glad that you came upon it. Have you talked to her on your podcast yet? Yes, I spoke with her uh, when the book came out several uh, months ago. Yeah. She's a wonderful, wonderful person, sharp as a tack um, and yeah, beautiful writer. Oh, I'm so glad we, we converge on that. <laughs> Well, um, we have a few minutes less left, and I just want to ask you if there's anything else that you wish I would have asked you. <laughs> oh, that's, <laughs> no, that's really kind. I mean, as you know, I have too much to say on the subject of uh, of travel writing, and I have a lot to say uh, on on the subject of my book. I mean, I, I think I just feel um, that the world is inexhaustible. I've been traveling much too much in the last nine months, I would say. And I think anyone who's traveled recently knows that travel's never been so chaotic and crowded as as in the last few months. Mm-hmm. And yet I still feel that the world never gets old. And even after, though I've been traveling for 48 years, um, I never run out of places to see. Just as the pandemic was beginning, I, I and my wife were in Antarctica. And I'm mostly an urban creature, so I hadn't been so excited about going there. But it humbled and silenced me with the thousand shades of silver and the majesty and scale. And then last year, nine months ago, I was in Zanzibar, kind of country I never thought I would get to. So I'm very happy when people like yourself and the many that you're encouraging take off into the world uh, to explore it. Uh, Because some people will tell you that there's too much tourism, that the world is homogeneous, that you might as well stay at home and see it on screen. And uh, I think there's still nothing to rival encountering the world in all its mystery um, in the flesh and in the round. And I think ultimately that's what my book is about, wonder. Just um, the bewilderment, the delighted bewilderment of confronting the world and realizing it's so much richer than your explanations of it. Mm-hmm. And the book is very rich. It's uh, it's chewy, I refer to it. <laughs> as it's a, it's a very, very, very chewy, uh, meaty book and the, the type of book that that I love. So thank you so much for, for writing this and agreeing to come on the podcast again, Pico. Really nice to talk to you again, Jeremy. Thank you for having this podcast and sharing it with the world. And I'm really wishing you joy with your book on hope. I can't think of a 
a worthier topic for all of us right now. You can find the episode show notes and much more at travelwritingworld.com. Please remember to subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast app. And if you find the show valuable, please consider leaving a review or supporting the show with only a few dollars a month at travelwritingworld.com support. Thank you.